0: Well, let's look at God's Word together. There's a quote from the 4th century that's very apropos for our message today. It's in Mark chapter 11. The author is none other than St. Augustine, who's considered one of the most brilliant and impactful writers of the early church. And he has a great love for the scriptures. And one of his famous statements that you may have heard of, you may not, was, I think, a really interesting way to capture the, the beauty and the grandeur and also yet the challenges of the scriptures. He wrote this. He said, the Bible is shallow enough for a child not to drown, yet deep enough for an elephant to swim. See what he's saying? The Bible is shallow enough for a child not to drown, yet deep enough for an elephant to swim. And that's really true. I mean, you can have a child that's four or five years old that gets it. Sin separates us from God. Jesus died on the cross. You have new life in Christ. They can understand that. And yet, the reality today, there's still biblical scholars who, for nearly two thousand years, will look at some of these passages and go, "I'm not sure, I'm not positive." There's a certain way you can look at that. And what we found out that over the years that there are some passages that are just so clear, so easy, it's like, "Got it." There's other passages you look at and you go, "I think I got it." And this is one of our passages this morning. Turn your Bible, if you would, to Mark chapter eleven. Our passage this morning is more like the I think I got it kind of deal, but it is tough. And I'll be honest with you, this passage is very interesting. One of the problems we have with this passage is familiarity. Jesus coming into Jerusalem, the cleansing of the temple, the fig tree. Most of us, I should say most, many of us have heard these stories and read it so many times. It's kind of like in one ear, out the other. And particularly on this passage, particularly with Mark, he's got a tendency to make everything short and brief and pack it all together. We really have to focus on what we're doing. So listen and follow along, if you would, as much as you can, because this is an interesting passage. What's interesting that makes this even a little bit more difficult is the terms that have been used to describe these events that go back for centuries. For example, um, we're going to be talking about the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, What's interesting in Mark, Mark doesn't make a big deal about it. It's not particularly triumphal. The other thing, we talk about Jesus, cleansing the temple. And yet in Mark, he doesn't say a lot about cleansing the temple. He taught we talk about Holy Week, that week from Palm Sunday to Jesus' death and resurrection. But there seems to be clues, even in the Gospel of Mark, that it was more than just one calendar, I mean one week. In fact, if you read the Gospel of John, it sounds like it may have been a number of weeks, even maybe uh, maybe a year or two. We don't really know. But you see, we've got all these terms that we use, and they're not necessarily helpful when we look at this. So what we're going to do this morning have a passage that's really challenging, a passage that um, you just can't be passive about because you've got to really be listening. The context, if we just get to remember again from last week, You remember we were in the last chapter and we were dealing with the rich young ruler. Remember the pastor, this guy, he was great, he was wonderful, he had political power, he was rich, he had everything they needed. And Jesus said, everything you have, there's just one thing you lack. Take all your money and give it away. What? And he found out the path of discipleship with Jesus, for his case. Not for everybody, but for his case, who had a lot of money and lots of power. He said, you have to choose and he walked away sorrowful. And what we have in that chapter right after the time where it talks about the, um, the rich young ruler, there's an interesting section there where Jesus again tells him for the third time, his men, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die, but I will rise again. And they still don't get it. And what you have at the end of this chapter 10, we haven't gotten right to chapter 11, at the end of this chapter 10, there's a fascinating little short story that most kids who grew up in Sunday school know all about. It's a guy named Blind Bartimaeus. Okay, Blind Bartimaeus is a guy, he was out there, Lord, he kept yelling, Lord, help me, Lord, save me, Lord, heal me. And so finally they said, they called the blind man and said to him, have courage, get up, Jesus is calling you. He threw off his coat, jumped up and came to Jesus. Then Jesus answered him, what do you want? What do you want me to do for you? Rabboni, kind of a rare name, like both rabbi and like teacher. The blind man told him, I want to see. Go your way, Jesus told him, your faith has healed you. Immediately he could see and began to follow him on the road. The irony of a blind man who gets to really see and understand what's going on. The people who are there who can see are spiritually not seeing. And what's interesting, this is the last of the healing ministries in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is now coming to Jerusalem. And all this is going to start happening, it's going to happen quick. And the last of these one of these healings have, have come to an end. And so it brings us to our passage this morning here, when we're in chapter eleven, verse one. So look if you would, right here in this passage, reading the first couple of verses. When they, the disciples, approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany, these are two little vill- two little villages outside of the temple, outside of Jerusalem, um, he sent two of his disciples <coughs> and told them, Go into the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, you'll find a young donkey there in which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and he'll send it. Now, stop there for a moment. It's an interesting passage because we don't know. Did... Jesus, when he was walking down from Nazareth in the north, coming down, did he tell a guy who had a place there, I'm going to need a a nice young donkey colt, and I'll meet you there, let him do it? I don't know. I mean, if I walked up to one of your cars and said, I like your car, please, you probably, unless you knew me really well and loved me, probably wouldn't give me the car. But it seems to me that Jesus, either he talked to somebody about what was coming, or Jesus knew what was going to happen, and this guy, for some reason, knew that he had to give this to Jesus. And so what it says in verse 6, so they went out and they found a young donkey outside in the street tied by a door. They untied it, and some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing, untying the donkey? They answered them as Jesus had said, so they let him go. Then they brought the donkey to Jesus and threw their robes on it, and he sat on it. Stop there for a moment. We've read that, many of us, many, many times. They put their robes on it, Jesus sits on there. And so Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, riding on this donkey colt. Now, what's interesting is the rabbis had, well, they had lots and lots of laws and ideas, but one of the ones they said is people coming up to Jerusalem should not ride on horses or donkeys. Now, if you're infirm, if you're you know, pregnant or something like that, then you could ride up on a donkey. For example, think of Mary coming up into J- Jerusalem and Bethlehem, she could ride. But otherwise, it is expected that you would walk. For many of them, that's a long walk, 50-60 miles. Okay? And so they're coming up leaving Jericho where blind Bartimaeus was, and it's a steep steep climb. It really goes back and forth and you climb almost 2000 feet up to get back to up to Jerusalem. And so here they are. It says they brought the donkey to Jesus, and they threw their robes on, it and he sat on it. So here's Jesus doing something very odd. He's not ill, and he's not old, but he's going to ride in. But what's happening, of course, is a lot of these people, these Jewish people, they know their scriptures, what we call the what we call the Old Testament, and they knew it well. And so what's happening is these coming, these people are making the connections here, and we see a lot of these. There's these connections going on of saying, "Hey, wasn't there like a, a famous passage in the Old Testament?" about somebody coming, a savior, a messiah? And the reality is, of course, there is. If you have a Bible, turn back the other direction into the Old Testament. You come to Malachi, then you come to Zechariah. And we're going to look at just for one verse, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Because it seems like Jesus is doing the very thing that the prophet talked about hundreds and hundreds of years before. He had talked about how there's going to be judgment on the enemies of God. And then in chapter 9, you have this thing how God is going to redeem his people. And so listen to verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Now notice the second half of the verse. See, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a donkey. There's a lot going on right there. Shout, daughter Zion, shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem, your king is coming. Kings did not normally come in on donkeys. Usually like the Romans and the Greeks, they would come in, the king on a great beautiful white charger or something, or a beautiful horse all decorated and they'd bring it in, but it's kind of strange. There's this idea of victory, but there's humility as well. He's righteous and victorious, humble. That's not what you normally think of a great ruler, but humble and riding on a donkey, not just any donkey, but on a colt. In fact, as we'll see, a foal of a donkey, like a a young one that has never, never had somebody riding on it. And so, of course, people were already, particularly the people who were coming with Jesus, coming from Nazareth in the north, coming up to Jerusalem, they're putting, hey, hey, could it possibly be that this guy, Jesus, that we've seen, and he's done these miracles, could he be the one that's fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, of that humble yet victorious king, the one who's going to ride on a donkey? And so already connections are going on in their head, saying, hey, that's, that's interesting. Because it said they put their robes on and he sat on it. Many people spread their robes on the road. This is verse 8, back in Mark, chapter 11 many people spread their robes on the road and the other spread leafy branches cut from the fields. Now once again inquiry minds want to know people are thinking hey doesn't this sound like another event we had even earlier than this when Jehu became king when Jehu was, had his coronation they put like a robe on the donkey and the donkey sat on it and they put branches on there going hey hey maybe Maybe we're having like a coronation here. Maybe Jesus really is the Messiah. Maybe he's the one that we've been waiting for all so long. And so, again, they're making more connections with what's going on. And then they're looking at other passages to talk about there's going to be that donkey, but no one had ever ridden on it. Of course, it was always probably a little bit scary when you get on a donkey for the first time and no one's never, never been on before. But I think Jesus had that in command and nobody was doing. Okay. But notice what happens here. Then they who went ahead and those who followed kept shouting, Hosanna! Hosanna! Hebrews, Hoshianna! It's like, please, Lord, like, Lord, please. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's taken that right out of one of the most popular Psalms in the Old Testament, Psalm 118. A long one, but a beautiful one. And so it said, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And of course, this is like Jesus, again, fulfilling these prophecies. And then, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. That does not seem to be part of the Old Testament, but it certainly fits with what's going on. Hosanna in the highest. And what's odd here, and what's strange, is you have this, what we call the triumphal entry, and there's people there, particularly people from the north who have seen Jesus' ministry. Remember, some of the people in Jerusalem have not met Jesus, have not seen his miracles, and they're more skeptical. But these are mostly people from Galilee coming down, and they're thrilled to be here, and they're making these connections thinking, maybe he's the one. We've waited for generations after generations that God would bring our Messiah, and he, this could be him. And so they look at these and say, this could be him. But what's odd in this passage in Mark is like, okay, that was nice. It's over. It's like really? I mean, that's it. There's nothing more to it. That's why some commentators said, you know, triumphal entry is not necessarily a good phrase, at least as Mark did it. It's like, yay, wonderful, could be him. All right, that was nice. What's for dinner? Kind of deal. So look what happens in verse 11. And he, Jesus, went unto Jerusalem, and into the temple complex. After looking around at everything, since it was already late he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now one commentator who wasn't particularly nice said, well, Jesus looks like a tourist. No, I don't think he's a tourist. But what would you think, knowing what Jesus knows, what's coming his way? When he looked at that unbelievably beautiful temple, what were the thoughts that were going through his head? I mean, it was beautiful. The temple, uh, some of you know, have been there in a trip maybe to Israel. But the temple complex that they talk about here, 500 yards long, 350 yards wide, about 35 acres of stone. There were walls around it. You know, there was an outer court where anybody could come pray. Then there was an inner court. You had to go past that little uh, stone thing, go into the next one. And that was where the court of the women, men and women, could be in there. But they made it very clear. They put signs up. Saying, if you're not Jewish, and you come over this thing into this part of the deal, we're not going to be able to, to protect you. You'll be killed. In fact, interesting, archaeologists found a section of this that talked about Greek, Latin, and Aramaic all saying the same thing. If you don't stay in that outer court, you can be killed. And the Romans would let them do it, by the way. They had a rule that they could do it. Because it was very clear, you don't do this. And so what happens is Jesus comes there and he comes to this beautiful place and there must have been all these different motions. One, what an unbelievable place. All along the sides were these massive columns, 30 feet high. It would take three people holding their hands to get around these columns. They'd been working on it for like 60 years. They were getting close to the end. And there was this unbelievable place and then everybody could come into the outer part Court of the Gentiles, men and women could be in the court of the women, and then finally only the men could come in even closer. Then you had this massive temple thing coming up, where only the priests could come in, where people could bring men could bring sacrifices, and so in one sense it was totally overwhelming experience to see Jerusalem. And by the way, I've had the privilege several times to be to Israel. It's interesting. Um, We often come in from the west, excuse me, from the east coming in and come up on a real high spot and you look down and there's the Temple Mount and there's where all this is. It's not uncommon for people to weep. For people that are just like overwhelmed by thinking all the history, all the things that happened in this one city. And for Jesus, I'm sure it's the same thing. It's Jerusalem. This is the city of the great King David. His son built the temple here. And and this is such a wonderful place. It's one of the great building things of the ancient world. And yet he said, but this is the place where they're going to kill me. They're going to take me out of the gate. They're going to crucify me. And so for Jesus, it says he was there. He went out in the temple complex and looking around at everything. It's already late. They went back to Bethany. Now, did he ever tell his disciples, what he was thinking, what he was feeling when he got back? We don't know. What we do know is the next thing that happens the next day is one of the oddest things that we have in the New Testament. Okay, Look at verse 12. The next day, when they, that is Jesus and the disciples, and probably some of the crowd who was with them they came from Bethany. Well, he was hungry. Verse 13. After seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went out to find if there was anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now, this passage has been a weird one for people for a long time. There's some people that think Jesus is having like a big snit here. You know, he had a bad hair day and he's just lounging you know, lou- out to all these different things. I don't think so. The question, if not, I mean, it says right here it wasn't the season for figs. So what does he expect? Well, here's the deal. It says here it says the next day that came, he was hungry. He said he found nothing on the leaves because it was not the season of figs. Now, one thing that makes this maybe a little bit more understanding. Understanding is that. During the time of the figs, when the figs are there, you know, obviously that's the big thing. But months later, there's a second, like, minor crop that comes. And they're not as big as regular figs. They're real tiny. In Hebrew, it's called pagim. They're these little, look like almonds. They said it's not particularly good, but you can eat them. And the animals like them as well. So it may be that he was saying, Oh, I know I'm not going to find any figs here, but at least there ought to be the pagim, the little ones. In other words, there's nothing here. And so Jesus says, Listen, may no one eat the fruit from you again. Now the question is, isn't that seem a little strange from everything you know about Jesus? I mean, does he really fly off the handle and curse a t- tree that can what am I going to do about it, you know? Do you want me to start growing figs during the night and have them for you, Jesus? And so it is an unusual passage. And so for centuries people have tried to think what this is. One of the probably, I think, maybe the best ways to understand this came from one of the earliest commentaries we have in Mark, from a guy named Victor of Antioch. He lived in the fourth century. And he, like some of the men that followed him, understand what was happening here this way. They were understanding that when Jesus went through this, when he said, when he cursed it, may no one eat fruit from you again, that what we're seeing here is what we call an enacted parable. Jesus, of course, most of his way of teaching was using parables. You remember the sower who went out to do this? Remember the man who did this, gave out the money? He's saying, this is not just a parable, this is an enacted one where things are happening. In fact, it's more like the play that the children did for us. It's a parable being told by people seeing what is going on, doing this. And what he was making to understand was that this is an enacted parable in the sense that when they're talking about the fig tree, it's talking about Jerusalem. And not just Jerusalem, but particularly the temple. And so what they're saying is that what they're doing, because many of the people, figs, were very big in Israel, and for the people, those people today, the day, and oftentimes they were identified with the nation and with the deal. And he's saying these fig trees, in many ways, he said, this is like a picture of what Jerusalem and the temple and Israel is like right now. They're very, very leafy, but there's no fruit. There's no fruit. There's nothing that's coming out of this and so what they're saying is he goes in this passage he says um, he said and his disciples heard it now after, write this it's interesting because right in this story about the bear and the fig tree he kind of gives us another little story to give us time to get to the next day now look at verse 15 when they came to Jerusalem that is Jesus and disciples he that is Jesus went into the temple complex and he began to throw out those buying and selling in the temple he overturned the money changers tables and he chairs of the selling doves and he would not permit anyone to carry goods to the temple complex I'll stop right there here's another thing this whole story about jesus being in there it's it, it's a remarkable story and it does seem almost a little out of character with jesus some people are troubled by the thing like hey these people are trying to make a living and you're knocking over their things and you're doing this and Mark, I mean, excuse me, Luke tells us that he had to look to be what something like a whip. I mean, a lot of point, this doesn't sound like Jesus. What's interesting here is that Jesus does do like a one-man protest against what was going on. Now, a lot of commentators, when you read things, will say, well, Jesus was dealing with this because there were so many corrupt people selling things. That's maybe part of it, but not all of it. The reality was that huge area we call the temple complex, thousands of people were going in and out through that. These people, what they were doing, they were providing an essential necessity for the people. A lot of people, if you're in Galilee, let's say 60 miles long, you really hate having to take the sheep that you're going to use for sacrifice and take it with you the whole time. So instead you just take money. And when you get there you buy a lamb and then you can have that be sacrificed. And so they were doing this, it was very important. So you can just imagine the scene. What's going on in the temple complex as they're getting close to Passover is people are coming, there's sheep going everywhere, also sheep and goats and bulls and doves, and people need something they can do to take for a sacrifice, and it's just chaotic. It's kind of like, uh, uh, you know, like a flea market and a religious treat at the, all at the same time. And people are going in every direction. And so some people say, well, this is because Jesus was angry with them, and and maybe he was. I mean, the fact is that people there had to give a certain shekel made in Tyre. And the reason why they did this, they said they did not like a lot of the other coins because mostly the Romans and the Greeks stamped their pictures and stuff on it. Of course, they thought that was idolatry. And so the Tyrian of Tyre was a very pure silver without any pictures on it, which the Jewish people appreciated And because people were coming from all over the Mediterranean, they all had their own currencies. And so the money changers were an essential part of what was going on at that time. So maybe you've got money that's from a Greek state and you've got to buy a lamb. So they say, okay, the the going rate for today is we're giving, you know, $250 for this and such. What do you mean you're doing that? And they'd be haggling back and forth trying to exchange money because they had to go to the temple. They had to have one single kind, the Tyrian shekel. And so it was necessary for people to be able to, you need money changers. People who could take different currencies, and of course they got a little bit of it, some got a little bit more of others for the sake of doing that. And it's the same way with those that are selling sheep, or goats, or those that are selling, or they're poor, doves. They had to bring something, they didn't want to have to walk with it, they had to buy it there. So this was an essential part of what life was like for these people at this time so it doesn't seem that that's the most crucial issue of what's going on here I think what we see, what is really the most biggest issue is what we see in verse 17 look at verse 17 then he Jesus began to teach them is it not written my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations but you've made a den of thieves then the chief priests and the scribes heard it and started looking for a way to destroy him. But they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. You see, what's interesting here in verse 17 is a thing that I think Jesus is most concerned about. Is that here in this remarkable temple, which is just one of the great things of the ancient world, that here there's a place, the biggest place of all, that says here's a place that anybody from any culture, every religion can come and come worship God the God of Israel. And then you look, what would it be like to try to have a time of worship in that place that close to Passover? It'd be like a circus. People are going this way and that way. In fact, some people love going through the temple because you didn't have to go through all the side streets. So they would cross over from one side to the other. There's goats, there's sheep, there's all this going on. People are going, get it over here. we got 2.5% for your Ethereum shekel. Get it. Come on over here. And you're trying to worship? And Jesus looks at it and said, this is nuts. Well, he didn't use that directly. That's me. Okay. Jesus said, there's something wrong here. I, he used to say, my father, God, chose the Jewish people to be his covenant people. He gave them this unbelievable privilege to be his people. And I told, he told them that you're going to be a light unto the world. People are going to see the difference that God makes in your life. And so here at this verse 17, he said, my, it's, is it not written, and he quotes from Isaiah the prophet, my house would be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it a den of thieves. In what way would anybody be able to worship at this place? And so he goes and he turns over the tables and all this. And of course, what's amazing, he doesn't get arrested. Because you think about it, the Romans are watching. They had in the Tantonian Fortress, they had people up there constantly watching to make sure somebody did not do something wrong or rub rebellion. And so what happens there, they don't arrest him. And again, he does all this and he leaves. Now, while all this is going on, we come to the next day if you look in verse 20. Look at verse 20. Early in the morning, this is the day before that the whole thing with the fig tree happened. Early in the morning, as they were passing by, they saw a fig tree withered from the roots up. In other words, it's not like it lost a few leaves or they were just hanging. It's like from top to bottom, that tree was dead. It's like, whoa, what would it take to make a tree go dead in one day? Well, only the power of God. Working through Jesus, go back to the idea of what we talked about a few minutes ago, of an enacted parable. If the if the if if Jerusalem, and if Jerusalem in the temple is like that—that's what's referring to the, pig, the fig tree. About that, if that's the thing, it's saying you know what's going to happen to this country, what's going to happen to this city. It's going down. It's going to be withered. Once this was a city, the city of David. This is one where so much has happened. It's an incredible place, but you, Israel, have failed in what God had called you to do, to be a light unto the nations, to draw people, to have a place where non-Jewish people could come and worship and come to know God. And you have completely lost that. He's saying, you know what, this is a picture. The fig tree thing is a picture of what's happening to Israel. And it's tragic to think about it, because the reality is this temple, even at the time of Jesus, it wasn't quite fixed, I mean finished. It was mostly done, like 95%. But it finally got finished in 66 AD, four years before the Romans came in and tore the whole place down. And so what Jesus said was not just a picture, but it was a prophesy, a prophecy of what was coming of saying that there was struggle going to come their way and there was going to be terrible and of course it was awful and that temple they spent like sixty years and we would consider millions of dollars to build a place like that leveled people scattered death, crucifixions, it was awful and what you have in this passage is very very important it's God saying, Jesus saying listen My house is going to be a house of prayer for all nations. And if you fail in making that available, you're going to be like the withered tree. And it's over for you. And it is tragic. What's interesting here in this passage, you get the big picture, you realize here is God that has chosen the Jewish people to be the light unto the Gentiles, to bring them to know God, and is saying, you know what, we're not interested. These are people that have come a long way to be able to worship out there in that court of the Gentiles. So, so what? Cows, sheep, goats everywhere. Who's going to pray here? And then having signs up saying, if you try to get into the next level of the place, we're going to kill you. That's a really nice way to attract people. And like the fig tree that's withered, he said, Israel, Jerusalem, temple, you're the fig tree that's withered and you're going to be cut down. It's a story of tragedy, but it's not the end of the story. The reality is God is still bringing Jewish people to faith today. Right in this very room on Saturdays, there are people that are there who are Jewish, some who are not Jewish, but love the Jewish lifestyle and want to be part of that, who are trying to help Jewish people to know that Jesus is truly their Messiah. And we know from the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9, in Romans chapter 10, Romans chapter 11, that God still has a purpose for the Jewish people. That one day there's going to be a restoration. There's going to be a flood of Jewish people coming. And by the way, many people believe that there's more Jewish people coming to faith in Jesus Messiah at any time since maybe the second or third century A.D. I hope that's true. It certainly seems that that's happening particularly in places around the world where you wouldn't expect it. But we know, particularly know from the end of the scriptures, that there's going to become a flood of people coming to know the Lord. And that's the great hope that we have as believers as well, to say God is going to bring them in. He uses that Paul loves to use that picture of the, the tree. And we were the Gentiles who were grafted on the tree. And, but yet God is going to bring back those broken pieces. That was Israel, and all of us would be together. Jews and Gentiles worshiping Jesus our Messiah. It is a beautiful vision, but it's more than a vision. It's a reality that's coming to us. We don't know if it's today. We don't know if it's next week. We don't know if it's a 100 years or a 1,000 years. But we know that God honors his word. And when Israel failed to do what God had called them to do, to be a light to the nations, God said, OK, I'll use the Gentiles. And of course, you read Ephesians about how God then took the Gentiles to let them be the way to show other people what Christ has done for them. But we have the picture and the hope of what God is going to do. So our passage this morning, it's an odd one, but it's an important one. It's telling us that things that we make that are so important, maybe they're not that important. Look if you would at this verse real quick and we'll be done. It says here at the bottom, in verse um, Verse 21, Jesus said to the disciples, have faith in God. I assure you, if anyone says the mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what will happen, it will be done for him. It's interesting, after talking about this terrible thing of Israel facing judgment because they were not a light unto the Gentiles, of saying, but you, who are, again he's speaking to Jewish people, you can have stray faith. You can have the knowledge that God is with you, that he's going to care for you, that your prayers are heard by him. And it's kind of odd because he goes from this very terrible picture of the destruction of the temple to suddenly talking about how God cares for us as individuals and how he will take care of us. And if he does not believe that He will, it will be done unto him, therefore I tell you all the things you pray and ask for, believe that you've received them and when you stand praying if you have anyone who's against you forgive him his whole point is interesting he goes from theology of what's about to happen to the temple to our own relationship with Jesus Christ as individuals and saying look what God can do we look back at what God did in Israel we look forward to what God is going to do through Israel and we realize we're all parts of that great story And God is continuing to hear the prayers of his people. Israel failed. There's no question about it. But God is restoring them. And the reality is, too, God is calling us to have a life of prayer that's focused on hearing God, obeying God, and following him. Father, thank you for this passage. We know it's a hard one. We know it's one where it's difficult. But we would pray that you'd help us to be able to deal with this passage, to think it through. And that, Father, that we would recognize the good work that you're doing in us and among us and through us. Be with us as we prepare our hearts for being, uh, to pray and also to take the Lord's table, that you would be with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.